Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to examine current events in historical perspective. I'm your host, Patrick Pagliandi. On today's show, we bring you three interviews to analyze the American-led global war on terror. History Talk host Mark Sikolsky tracked down three experts on the topic to explore its roots and how this controversial campaign has changed since the early 2000s. First, John Mueller discusses public fears about terrorism and how these compare to the actual threats facing the United States. The next two guests examine the war on terror in the context of long-term shifts in U.S. security policy. Andrew Bacevich situates the war on terror within a decades-long attempt to stabilize the Middle East, a campaign that he characterizes as a kind of American imperialism. Lastly, your host Mark Sikolsky speaks with Peter Mansour, who notes that while the U.S. made a poor choice by invading Iraq in 2003, the way forward is nonetheless through unremitting pressure on terrorist groups. So stay tuned for three great discussions on History Talk. Joining us now on History Talk is John Mueller, Woody Hayes Chair of National Security Studies at the Mershon Center for International Security Studies and adjunct professor of political science. Dr. Mueller specializes in the study of terrorism and particularly on public perceptions of terrorism. Dr. Mueller, thank you for joining us today. Thanks. Nice to be here. So just to start, how would you define the war on terror um, and how would you say that understandings of the war on terror in the broader public and among policymakers have changed over the last 15 years or so? Yeah, well, the, the uh, global war on terror is basically a de- disastrous milita- militarized response to 9-11, uh, resulting in the destabilization of the Middle East and several catastrophic wars, which have killed twice as many pe- Americans who died in 9-11 and well over 100,000 uh, Muslims in the Middle East. Um, it doesn't. I don't see that it's really changed all that much. It's basically going increasingly solidify, solidified. Uh, though there is a considerable interest in not doing more Iraqs. But I think the general support for going after terrorists remains about as high as it was before. Uh, but I think there's been a considerable drop in the enthusiasm for doing using one tactic, uh, which is the uh, putting of uh, boots on the ground to fight them. And uh, how would you say that public perceptions of terror, have they stayed more or less the same since 9-11 or have those yes. changed as well? Yes, yeah, so it's a nice surprise. There's been almost no erosion. Hmm. So uh, current, right after, by the end of, at least since the end of 2001, uh, at the end of 2001, about 40% said that they were worried that they or a member of their family might be harmed by a terrorist, since their chance of being killed by a terrorist is about one in four million per year. Or if you only deal with the period since 9-11, it's one in 80 million per year. Uh, that's a spectacularly high of worrying. Forty percent say they worry about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, shortly after nine eleven, the question was asked: Do you expect there to be another attack in the United States, killing large numbers of Americans uh, in the near future? And shortly after nine eleven, that stood at about seventy-two percent. Said they they thought that was likely or very likely. And essentially, there's been some bumps up and down as events have transpired. But uh, basically, at the present time, it stands pretty much at that same level. And what do you think that is? Why do you think perceptions have not changed that much? Uh, the main reason probably is a couple of reasons. There's, there's several reasons. Obviously, 9-11 was a big trauma and so forth. Sure. Pretty obvious. But um, I think there's um, the the fact that people are constantly being reminded of it because there's all these little arrests and so forth. And they, they, many of these don't capture the headlines for more than a day or so. But there's continuous sort of... Uh, pointillistic reminders of it in various ways. Uh, and the other is that it's related to this vast, over, some, some, somewhat spooky overseas enemy 
somewhere out there, there's somebody directing these guys and they're among us and we can't tell them from other people pretty much uh, and there isn't any real center uh, and uh, it's, it's hard to see how they can be extinguished. So um, it's, it's a, a little bit like um, the uh, concern about domestic communists during the Cold War. They too were people among us who were up to no good, it seemed, and they're related to this vast overseas communist conspiracy uh, focused uh, either in Moscow or in Beijing or both or someplace else. So it was an international movement uh, that, that did, could, however, expire eventually, and it did. The other comparison is with witches uh, who are uh, associated with, indeed copulated with, according to the testimony, uh, the ultimate spook, which is the devil. Um, so they're the devil's handmaidens. Uh, according to the uh, argument of uh, in, in, uh, in, in Europe between basically 18, 1480 and 1680, um, and they um, were uh, it was the argument that these witches were the uh, working for the devil, and so several hundred, several uh, several tens of thousands of them were executed, mostly by being burned at the stake during that period of time, uh, and that fear, the, the belief that witches. The, the belief that witches existed is by no means new, or no, no, no was no, by no means new then. Uh, but the idea that they were in league with the devil and they were working uh, surreptitiously to cause famines and uh, and uh, wars and pestilence and so forth uh, was um, uh, was very much heightened during that period. With the idea that we'd be better off if we could find them and execute them, which they did in great number. And would you say there are lessons that can be learned? from a sort of past hysteria. Perhaps communism is, is uh, uh, closer to our own experience. Yeah, the, well, in the case of domestic communists, there was very little, during the Cold War, there's very little decline yeah. uh, in the notion uh, of uh, thinking they were a greater, very great threat to American security. Mm -hmm. So it was very high at the time of McCarthyism, and even 10 years later it was still high, and 20 years later it had gone down mm -hmm. some. Uh, but this is a time when there was no reminders. I mean, the Domestic Communist Party was essentially a joke, mostly filled by FBI agents. Uh, they, they weren't doing anything. There wasn't any sabotage. There weren't attempted sabotage. There wasn't any spying that was being successful. So there's basically no news about them. Nevertheless, even though the no news about them um, dropped virtually to zero, in fact, in some years was zero, there were no stories in the major press about domestic communism or domestic communists um, nonetheless, fears remained fairly high for a long time. Eventually, I assume they dissipated with the end of the Cold War. Is there any sort of practical kind of policy response to stemming these sorts of fears? Or is it something that just takes on a life of its own and dies out on its own? Yeah, I'm afraid the latter is the case. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, uh, one of the more preposterous things is what happened with uh, uh, Barack Obama last Jan January 2015 when he came out and argued that uh, the terrorism did not present an existential threat to the United States. Um, now, that should have been, that's bone-crunchingly obvious from my standpoint that a group of a few thousand or a few hundred people in the Middle East can, can cause the United States to cease to exist. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was the first politician, really. He was preceded a little bit by Joe Biden to actually come out and say that. As far as I can see, that's made no difference, though it hasn't hurt him. In other words, people haven't said you don't care about terrorism, so at least it hasn't hurt him. But if Obama can't change opinion, it's hard to see how anybody else can change opinion as well either. Uh, and the rise of ISIS, of course, has fed into those fears and, um, and uh, es escalated concerns right. um, uh, uh, around that. Uh, and it, it basically can't go away. 
I mean, the whole idea of the war, the global war on terrorism is you're going out against a tactic. So you have a global war on amphibious landings, for example. It's, you know, it's basically preposterous. Uh, anybody can commit terrorism at any time. And even if you extinguish al-Qaeda and ISIS and every other known group, people can still be inspired by their example, even if they're dead. Mm -hmm. People are still inspired by the example of Che Guevara, and he's been dead for half a century. Sure. Um, so consequently, causing them to be the groups themselves, the major coherent groups uh, to be destroyed, is, is, uh, wouldn't necessarily end the fears. So you're sort of saying that, in a sense, this is a, an endless campaign against something that can't really there's no victory in the war on terror if it's just against if, if you uh, want to stop terrorism uh, i mean no police chief goes forward and says we're going to extinguish murder right. in the city right i mean it's ludicrous uh, it's something that someone can pick up a gun uh and uh, you know just start shooting at somebody or stabbing at somebody mm -hmm. uh, or uh, or menacing them in a violent way uh, obviously, it can it, it can be it, it can't be extinguished completely. So that it's it's always existed as as murder, um, and always will in some sense or other. Do you think there are those uh, in the U.S. government and military who have a vision for victory? I, I, yes, well, there's fantasies that go everywhere. Sure, you can certainly imagine destroying Al Qaeda. You can certainly mm -hmm. imagine destroying ISIS as a military entity. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that you can have those kinds of victories, but whether they stop people from being inspired by the example of these uh, uh, organizations or those people um, is is it, you, there's no way you can stop people from being inspired by whatever they want to be inspired by. That was Mark Sikolsky interviewing Ohio State professor and Mershon Center affiliate John Mueller. Next, Mark interviewed Andrew Basevich, professor of history and international relations at Boston University, to discuss American interventionism. Joining us now is Andrew Basevich, professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston University, a specialist in American diplomatic and military history, in the history of U.S. foreign policy and security studies. Dr. Basevich, thank you for joining us. Oh, glad to be with you. So just to start off, uh, I was wondering if we could ask a bit about the origins of the so-called global war on terror. And I'm curious to know where that term came from, who came up with it, uh, and why they decided to call the campaign against al-Qaeda and, and other terrorist groups a, a war. Well, uh, I'll, I'll answer the question by making reference to my newest book, okay, uh, which is called America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History. Uh, and the purpose of that book is to provide a, a, a narrative of U.S. military involvement in the, in the greater Middle East, that is to say, in large parts of the Islamic world. Now, to your question as to the, 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 the phrase global war and terrorism, uh, two points. The first is, I think it was from the very outset uh, inappropriate and misleading, but uh, it, it was uh, devised by the George W. Bush administration uh, in response to 9-11. Uh, uh, my own narrative says that uh, the war in which we have been engaged, which is not a war against terrorism, uh, but a war to impose some sort of order uh, on the disordered parts of the Islamic world, that that war uh, began in 1980. Most Americans... Uh, would say that no, 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 the, 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 the war in which we are engaged began uh, in the wake of September uh, 2001. Uh, my story says that uh, back in 1980, when Jimmy Carter promulgated the Carter Doctrine, uh, that was a statement that identified the Persian Gulf as a vital U.S. national security interest, 
that is to say, a place that the United States would fight for. Uh, my argument is that that statement initiated the militarization of U.S. policy, not only in the Persian Gulf, but in, in a much broader swath uh, of, the, of the greater Middle East. So beginning with Carter's, not simply his statement, uh, but with the failed Iran hostage rescue attempt of April 1980, mm-hmm. and also his initiation of support for Afghan militants uh, resisting uh, Soviet uh, pressure and presence in, in, in Afghanistan, uh, that uh, unwittingly uh, Carter really touched off a, a sequence of events, a sequence of military events, U.S. interventions, large and small, brief and protracted, that have brought us to where we are today uh, and that deserve to be called uh, a war. Uh, rather than simply a disconnected set of of, of campaigns. Uh, so I think the war begins in 1980, not in 2001. I think that the war deserves to be called America's War for the Greater Middle East, not a global war on terrorism or any of the other terms that have been created to, to describe, describe the undertaking. So you would say that the major kind of turning point in U.S. foreign policy, at least toward the Middle East, is, is in 1980. Are there any historical precedents for that kind of shift um, or this kind of open-ended context? No, I think sure there, sure there are. Um, okay. I, think, I think that a comparable shift occurred uh, in 1898. Prior to 1898, U.S. military activity, by and large, was uh, confined to uh, North America. There were exceptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by and large confined to North America, beginning with the intervention uh, in uh, Cuba and and the accompanying intervention in the Philippines, the scope of U.S. military activity widened appreciably, so that if we look at the decade after the Spanish-American War, uh, we see a heightened U.S. military activism throughout the Caribbean uh, basin, Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also see a, a greater significance attached to U.S. interests in the, in the Pacific, not entirely defined by the Philippines, but also defined by growing U.S. interests in China. So I, I think that 1898 uh, really, in some respects, was a comparable turning point in redefining U.S. strategic priorities, comparable, that is to say, to what occurred in the wake of 1980. So what we're seeing now is a sort of new, new American imperialism. I think that's fair to say. And, of course, uh, many Americans bridle at that term uh, being applied to U.S. policy. uh, And the official uh, justifications uh, will never uh, acknowledge that the United States is an imperial power or has has imperial ambitions. Uh, And it's certainly true uh, that the American empire is not comparable to, let's say, the British Empire, the Roman Empire. We do empire our own way. Mm-hmm. That said, uh, I've long come to believe that empire, imperialism, uh, are, are useful terms in describing uh, U.S. activity and ambitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they are certainly more accurate uh, than the claims that, uh, you know, we do what we do simply because we're trying to liberate uh, oppressed peoples. Rarely do we do what we do in order to liberate oppressed peoples. I mean, uh, certainly the George W. Bush administration mm-hmm. claimed uh, that a principal reason for intervening in Iraq in 2003 uh, was to liberate oppressed 
uh, Iraqis who were suffering, and they were suffering, mm-hmm. uh, under the uh, boot of, of Saddam Hussein. I think to accept that claim at face value is to uh, ignore the actual reasons for intervening in Iraq, which which were related to a misguided definition of, of U.S. interests and an entirely unrealistic appreciation of what U.S. military power was going to be able to do in, in Iraq. Would you say that intervention in Afghanistan was similarly imperial? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it imperial, but I would. I would. Uh, I mean, the, uh, so this was called Operation Enduring Freedom mm-hmm. by the Bush administration. Uh, the name uh, supposedly suggesting that uh, this was about freeing uh, Afghans. I think freeing Afghans was an afterthought. I wouldn't describe the principal purpose as imperial. Uh, I would describe it as uh, re- deriving from a calculation of concrete interests. Mm. What the calculation was that here was a place that had provided sanctuary for the terrorist organization that attacked us on 9-11, and therefore it was incumbent upon the United States to demonstrate the consequences of harboring anti-American terrorists. So from that point of view, uh, it was essential to uh, at least punish the Taliban and preferably uh, overthrow the Taliban. But that had nothing to do with uh, concern about the well-being of Afghans. Certainly, we had we expressed zero, zero <laughs> concern about the well-being of the Afghans prior to 9-11, mm-hmm. despite the fact that the sequence of events that brought the Taliban to power, uh, we, we had a pretty, pretty important hand in that sequence mm-hmm. uh, by fueling the anti-Soviet war of the, of the 1980s and then walking away from Afghanistan and ignoring it. Mm-hmm. Uh, once the Soviets withdrew and Afghanistan descended into its own protracted civil war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that sort of raises the question about, uh, about blowback. Would you, um, would you say that Islamic terrorism, sort of broadly defined, could be characterized as a kind of imperial blowback against the United States or perhaps Europe? Well, I think it's important not to... I, mean, I, I, I would argue that the, uh, there are, there's a multiplicity of causes Mm-hmm. Uh, that have produced this phenomenon, uh, which I think we could call violent Islamic uh, radicalism. Uh, the United States, yes, the United States contributed uh, to this to this phenomenon. But to say that somehow the phenomenon would not exist other than for actions of uh, the United States, I think, misses a whole variety of other factors. A kernel mm-hmm. crisis. Uh, in Islam, uh, the legacy of ill-advised European imperialism, the uh, absence of uh, economic development, the, the presence of local leaders who have been corrupt and and ineffective. Uh, so there's a whole variety of factors that that have contributed to the situation. But, but I would emphasize, and this is sort of the argument of my new book. Uh, the expectations entertained by a succession of administrations in Washington, that the adroit use of American military power can somehow fix things. Uh, those expectations have been have, have not met with success, to put it mildly. And I think I think it is reasonable to argue uh, that the uh, that U.S. military efforts uh, in the Greater Middle East have actually made things worse, not better. Okay. Um, and just as a as a final question, what do you think would be a more effective, uh, perhaps realistic response to the threat of terrorism 
And how do you see the military fitting into well, that the, response the, at all? The, the threat of terrorism, mm-hmm. the threat of terrorism to the United States of America is not particularly great. And the response to terrorism, it seems to me, is primarily lies in the realm of self-protection. If, if the neighborhood you live in uh, has had a, a series of house break-ins, uh, then the, the the most the most important thing for you to do is to ensure that your doors and windows are locked, mm-hmm. uh, and and that is and that is too easily overlooked as the most important response to terrorism threatening the United States. And and in nine eleven, uh, on nine eleven, uh, we left the front door wide open. Uh, right. Certainly, since then, uh, our defenses have become more effective. But I would emphasize that the most important response uh, to terrorism as a threat to the United States is to ensure that domestic security agencies are effectively led and that they are properly resourced. We should never, never, never let our guard down. Well, thanks very much. Our guest today has been Andrew Basevich, Professor of International Relations and History at Boston University. Dr. Basevich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That was Mark Sikolsky speaking with Andrew Basevich of Boston University. In our final segment, Mark met up with Peter Mansour, professor of military history at Ohio State and a retired U.S. Army colonel who served in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East, including as a brigade commander in Iraq. They discussed the 2003 invasion of Iraq and where do we go from here. Joining us now is Dr. Peter Mansour, professor of history at the Mershon Center for International Studies and Ohio State's Department of History. Dr. Mansour, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me on. So just to start off, how do you think future historians will view the war on terror? You know, it may be more than nothing more than a small footnote in the history books, but uh, I think that they will look um, more broadly at the changes sweeping the world. Uh, with globalization, with instantaneous communications, with the public knowledge of what's going on almost anywhere on the globe. And, and they'll view that sort of change as, as really the key of what's happening today. And then groups, terrorist groups that happen to use the tools that the modern world has provided in, in w- ways of transportation and communication, they'll view those as sort of the, the outgrowth of these more broad sweeping social changes. Hmm. Do you think that they'll see uh, kind of missteps or missed opportunities uh, looking back at this sort of broad conflict? I think 9-11 was clearly the watershed in this regard. Mm-hmm. After 9-11, the United States had the entire world united behind, behind it. Uh, I think only Afghanistan and, and maybe one or two other small nations didn't want to, Afghanistan to give up Osama bin Laden. Uh, people were flying the American flag um, and we really had the world united, and then we we blew it, quite frankly, I, by going into Iraq, by using this as a pretext to take out Saddam Hussein with no clear link between him and 9-11. I think we, um, we jettisoned a lot of the goodwill that we had created, and so it's, it's unfortunate. Unfortunately, this is a, uh, you know, you only get one trip around the game board. Uh, you can't go back to go and collect $200 and start the, the journey again. So we are where we're, we're at. Mm-hmm. Would you say that 9-11 or maybe the invasion of Iraq represents a kind of break in U.S. foreign relations, approaches to international affairs, or is it fairly consistent with what uh, with sort of broader trends we saw before? 
No, I think it's a I think it's a break. You know, we, for almost half a century, the Cold War consumed the United States, and we won that conflict definitively. And then we had this very brief, decade-long unipolar moment when the United States was, in the words of the French Prime Minister, a, a hyperpower, the the most powerful nation on earth, and the one with the most military capability, the largest economy, and and really we could sort of dictate the um, the norms by which the world traded, conducted business, conducted international relations. And uh, but in the United States, that period was, you know, there was a lot of soul searching as to what do we do now? I mean, we we won the Cold War. What replaces it? Do we, you know, George H.W. Bush had this idea that there would be a new global order that would replace it, that nations working together could do things like ensure that nations didn't invade other nations. The the Gulf War in 1990-91 being a prime example of that. Mm-hmm. That was um, fantasy, unfortunately. Uh, clearly, uh, the world you know history had not come to an end. Uh, other nations with different interests than the United States were looking for ways to chip away at American power. And after 9-11, they found it. Um, and you can see that with the Russian uh, support for Bashar al-Assad, his takeover of the Crimea, his um, uh, support for rebels in the Ukraine. Um, you can see that in China, uh, building islands in the South China Sea and chipping away at American alliances in the Pacific. And so we've entered a new era now, one that is much more multipolar in character and uh, much more dangerous, unfortunately, for the United States and the American people. Are there uh, historical precedents or analogs that come to mind uh, when you think about the war on terror from the American perspective, either in American history or in the history of other nations, states, empires? This is uh, fairly unique where a nation is hit with an attack by a a non-state group and then launches a major uh, industrial-sized invasion of two different countries Mm -hmm. in order to stamp out the the manifestation of of that non-state group. Um, I'm sure there might be some parallels back in the 19th century in the British Empire, but, you know, the homeland, Great Britain, was never attacked. Mm -hmm. Um, They sent out punitive expeditions, but they were for other reasons, not necessarily because London came under assault. Right. And again, it's those modern manifestations of globalism and, and communications that enabled those attacks to take place. If you don't have airplanes... If you don't have the internet, if you don't have telephone systems and so forth to coordinate the attacks, the Twin Towers are still standing. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, this is really a unique historical moment. I think so, yeah. To take that in kind of a different direction, do you think there are any lessons that uh, we can draw from the past in approaching the problem of terrorism, Islamic radicalism in the Middle East? I think you can always use history to gather context and and, uh, to, you know, see where, where other historical actors have faced similar challenges, not the same challenges. Um, There have been people like Osama bin Laden in the past, Mm -hmm. and you don't know about them today because they simply eventually disappeared. They died out. And I think what we should take from this is we shouldn't over-dramatize the power of these non-state groups. Uh, They're not not an existential threat to the United States unless they gain nuclear weapon capability. And so we need to put them in their proper context, although they are the, the most dangerous, perhaps one of the most dangerous aspects in the world today in terms of 
American foreign policy, American security, they have very limited power in the end. They're, some of them are more akin to, say, the anarchists in Russia around the turn of the 20th century than they are to a group that could actually take and hold territory. Even ISIS, its grip on portions of Iraq and Syria is uncertain, and I think um, over time it will disappear. We talked to Andrew Basevich earlier, um, and he characterized the war on terror as part of a war for the greater Middle East uh, that began around 1980. Would you agree with that, that this is kind of part of a an attempt to stabilize or establish American hegemony in the Middle East? I am familiar with uh, Dr. Basevich's argument. I, I disagree that America is trying to assert its hegemony across the Middle East. Iran is actually trying to do that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I, I would say that beginning with the Iranian revolution, there was a great fear that the oil resources of the Middle East would come under threat. And with that, with the if they did come under threat, that would threaten the economies of the Western world. And so the United States had a goal to make sure that Russia couldn't seize the the Gulf region, that um, Iran couldn't um, take hold of the Gulf region. And it's not necessarily American hegemony, but we wanted, you know, the, the oil to flow. And we also had a, a, a goal in protecting Israel as an important uh, part of the American uh, foreign policy in the region, you know how it's played out over time. Uh, I think the again the watershed in this regard is the invasion of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Until then, we're really supporting um, you know various governments in the Middle East that are, are in accord with U.S. foreign policy interests. That doesn't make them our our proxies necessarily. It just uh, it's an alignment of of interests that is natural when you look at foreign policy and the way it it plays out around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people often magnify the power that the United States has. When uh, Hosni Mubarak started to um, lose his grip on power, his supporters looked to the United States to say, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, what could we do about it? We're not going to involve ourselves in this internal revolution. And and so he fell from, from power. And they they blamed us in part because you know well you could have done something well what again what could we have done so I think people magnify the power that the United States has we have interests in the Middle East we don't necessarily own governments you, you might say well Kuwait you know Kuwait wouldn't exist today without American power well true enough all right so we did fight a war to liberate that country sure but the, the Iraq War is a real watershed because that's the first time that we actually do inject huge numbers of forces into the Middle East Mm -hmm. in order to change the nature of a a government and a a key government at that. It didn't end well for us. And um, and as the Obama administration has shown, there's a great reluctance to repeat that experiment. So I think the, you know, the idea that we're somehow bent on hegemony in the Middle East is 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 not borne out by the facts. Pretty clear, however, that Iran is bent on trying to increase its power across the Middle East with um, with force, with proxy forces, and um, and with all the tools of state power at its dis- disposal. Right. Um, yeah, and you mentioned the kind of reluctance of the Obama administration to intervene in Syria. I think is what you were alluding to. Well, before that, Libya. Oh, in Libya, you know, right? They, right. They, we're we're happy to conduct regime change. 
from as the, long as from we don't cockpit. as long as we don't do anything afterwards. Right. And we saw how that has played out. It's been a disaster. Mm-hmm. Why did the Obama administration drop the term "war on terror"? You preferring to use alternative terminology? Well, terror, uh, terrorism is a tactic, mm-hmm. and it's you can't have a war against a tactic. You have to identify your enemy. The Obama administration didn't want to identify its enemy. It really is the Islamists that use Islam as a basis for projecting their political power for gaining adherence. It's an ideology. And the Obama administration doesn't want to give the Islamists the authority, the mantle of Islam, Hmm. by identifying them in any way as connected with the religion. I think it's a mistake. I mean, I think we have to be clear on who we're fighting. You know, we're not fighting Basque separatists in Spain. We're fighting we're fighting Islamists who mm-hmm. are projecting a very twisted form of Islam into uh, various places around the world and, and are using, you know, very heinous terrorist tactics uh, to advance their cause. Now, this is a big question, but just sort of in broad strokes, where do you think we should take the fight against various terrorist groups, Islamic terrorist groups from here, what would be a constructive approach or perhaps a more effective approach than what we've seen? I think uh, we need unremitting pressure on Islamist terrorist groups with uh, that have a reach beyond their own borders um, wherever they manifest themselves. Uh, We had this for a brief moment between 2007 and 2010 and actually we were able to make a lot of headway against uh, various groups around around the world. Al-Qaeda was on the wane. We had eviscerated Al-Qaeda in Iraq, unfortunately resuscitated itself when we let up on the pressure. Hmm. So that's one aspect. Unremitting pressure on Islamist terror groups wherever they manifest themselves around the world. And the second part is getting the other, the rest of the Muslim world, which is the majority of the Muslim people, mm-hmm. to reject this this ideology and reject it publicly because quite frankly they haven't done a very good job of rejecting it and um and that's that's the battle for hearts and minds if you will but that's a battle that has to be fought within islam we can't do it for them Hmm. um what we the only thing we can do is unremitting pressure on islamist terrorist groups wherever they manifest themselves around the world and i think the most important branch right now is the islamic state Well, Dr. Mansour, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. That was History Talk host Mark Sikolsky with an interview of Professor Peter Mansour of Ohio State. This has been a History Talk podcast produced by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective. You can find both at origins.osu.edu. A big thank you to all our guests for speaking with us today about the war on terror. Thanks to John Mueller, Andrew Basevich, and Peter Mansour. And be sure to join us next month when we discuss extremism and instability in sub-Saharan Africa.